Hey, good morning, everybody. How we doing? You guys ready? Here's what I'm going to promise you. This is going to be the most boring sermon you have ever heard. <clears throat> All right, just write that down, because here we go. Because if you're new here, if this is your first time here, first of all, yes, I'm boring. But that's not why it's going to be a boring sermon. Let me try to set it up. We've been studying about leadership uh, for the last three or four weeks, and we're using this book in the Bible called Nehemiah. This is a book that was written about 500 years before Jesus uh, was actually born. And this book is about a guy named Nehemiah who is a profound leader. And what we're learning from this is how do we become mature leaders? Because mature leaders matter. Like some of you are leaders in our city and how you lead matters. Some of you are leaders in the workplace. Some of you are leaders in your home. But every one of you are leaders in your own life. You are bringing leadership or you're avoiding bringing leadership to your own personal life. And trust me, if your life was being run by somebody other than you, would you not want them to be mature? Have you ever dated somebody that's immature? Okay, I just needed to get that out there. All right. So what we're studying is how do we as a community grow up? So the book of Nehemiah is kind of placed right around here in the redemptive story of what Christ has done. It starts back here with Moses and Abraham, the Ten Commandments. Then God established the nation of Israel. And he said, through this nation, I will bless the world, you know? And so the Israelites, they had a lot of problems. Solomon built the temple and they really couldn't get around to like serving the Lord. So the Babylonians came in, Nebuchadnezzar. He came in and they ransacked the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They burned all the gates. They took everybody captive. They became prisoners for years and years. And then the Babylonians were uh, overtaken by the Persians. Cyrus the Great, you remember your history from high school? That Cyrus the Great came in, took over the Babylonian Empire. Now the Jews were under Cyrus's rule. And Cyrus said to the Jews, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your home. So that's where we find Nehemiah. That they're, they're back, the book of Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, they're all that same section of time. Nehemiah is about right here. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And what does that mean? When the king drank wine, before he would sip it, Nehemiah would sip it. In other words, if anybody's trying to poison the king, they're going to poison Nehemiah first. He was the most trusted man in the kingdom. He had the life of the king in his hands. Some would say that cupbearer, yes, he did do that, but he was kind of head of the, the Persian cabinet. Like he was a man of influence and power. And when he heard that Jerusalem was in disarray, the walls were torn down, the gates were, were not up, <clears throat> the enemies were coming against him, he wept. The king saw it. The king said, why don't you go back and rebuild the city? Y'all remember this? Are you with me? Any questions so far? Okay, so we're in Nehemiah chapter three. And uh, normally we have a reader. I couldn't do that to you today, all right? Because in this one chapter, there are probably 50 Hebrew names. It's like the nightmare of every reader. It's like, you know, the dream you have in the middle of the night where it's your reader and you're standing in front of everybody naked and you're reading Hebrew names. That's, that's what this would be. I'm not even going to do it to me, all right? So I decided what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a recording of a professional reading this passage of Scripture. Are you with me? Okay. Come on, guys. Let's lighten up. We are the church. We didn't go to church, all right? So no expectations. All right. 
So why don't we begin? This is Nehemiah chapter three, verse one. Notice the names, please. Chapter three. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasenah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meremoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to I him, know. Meshalom, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervision. Okay, we, we got to stop, all right? Because, let me... I got to confess to you, this is the most boring chapter in the entire Bible. I know, it's a holy scripture, and we honor it and everything, but the rest of the chapter is just like that, you know? So-and-so rebuilt this section of the wall, so-and-so rebuilt this gate, so-and-so rebuilt this section of the wall, so-and-so rebuilt this gate. It is so boring. So I thought, hey, and if, if you're a lover of the word, I'm a lover of the world, just don't take this wrong. I think we need to speed it up a little bit because we all have lunch to get to. So if you don't mind, I've sped it up just a little bit to help us get through the chapter. So let's, let's try that again. The Cheshire Gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, son of Besodiah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, oh, yeah. repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mispah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jodon of Moronoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, yep. son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad okay. wall. Yes. Meshulam, son of Hur, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. 33 verses. Gideon, son of Harumah, made repairs on the east And Hathush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the of they rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dumb gate. The dumb gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethlehem. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts yeah, and bars in place. The dumb gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kol Hosea, ruler of the district of Bethlehem. He rebuilt it, moving over and placed in bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king. Hey, David, I know that name. The dumb gate, the Messiah of Azbuk, ruler of the district of Bethlehem, made repairs to a fort opposite the tomb of David as far as the artificial pool and house of the heroes. Next to him, repairs were made by the Levites under the tomb of Sanabani. He's having a trial. Carried out by the Next to him, repairs were made by the Ephraimites. The Cheshire gate was repaired by Joiah, son of Peshiah, and Meshulam, son of when we planned this, I said, you know what? I got the willpower to let it go all the way to the end. I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> and this is, a, this is the word of God. So <laughs> let me try to explain what this chapter is saying, all right? And so uh, what I did is I had uh, our team print up for us uh, like a mock-up of the city of Jerusalem at the time. And the city of Jerusalem... Uh, as you can tell, uh, what this chapter does, it actually starts at the Sheep Gate, which is right up here. And are you bored yet? I told you it's gonna be so boring. Snoozer, like he's got an electronic pointer, a laser. All right, hang on. <laughs> kind of cool, isn't it? All right. Uh, the Sheep Gate is where the chapter starts, and it actually works its way all the way down south, down here around the Dung Gate. <laughs> all the way back north, back up, and it finishes right where it starts. So, like, if we went through the chapter, it says the priest built the Sheep Gate, which, uh, let's just use our imagination here. Like, how many gates do you think this group of priests had built before? 
Probably none. I mean, the priests are guys that read a lot of books, you know? They don't build gates, but they built that gate. Then we come down here in verse 2, and we realize that the guys of Jericho built that little section right there. That's exciting, isn't it? Good for you guys from Jericho. And then we come down here, and there's the rebuilding of the fish gate. And then Tekoa, this is interesting, right next to the fish gate, the people of Tekoa rebuilt this section of the wall, and it says, but the nobles didn't help. Like, I was in the Bible. Like, you know, you want to talk about a slight to the nobles. Anyway, and so we keep coming down here in verse 6. We got the old gate that is uh, rebuilt and boring, boring. But here's something that's really exciting that's not so boring. This little section right here was rebuilt by goldsmiths and perfumers. I know. Okay, all right. Uh, Pretty exciting, isn't it? Now, what I love about this long section right here is this whole section here, it starts with uh, Jedediah, who repaired this section of the wall right across from his house, which means he lived right there. You taking notes? All right. Spectacular, right? Then we get to the Tower of Ovens, and we realize that uh, we're coming around the corner here, and this Shalem... Shalem, right in this section right here, it says that he rebuilt this section of the wall, and it says, with his daughters. So can we pause just for a minute? And let's just ask a simple question. Where was mom, all right? It was just Shalem and his daughters, and mom's nowhere to be. Okay, I'm trying to make this exciting. I know, it's so boring, isn't it? And if we come down here, we also realize that the Zenoa, this is where the people of Sanoa rebuilt this section of the wall. Sanoa was a town about 10 miles away. So what we're seeing is this whole community of people, you know, packed up all their work supplies, their picnics, their lunches, you know, their tailgate, you know. And they came and as a whole community, they rebuilt this big section of the wall. Pretty cool, right? All right. Then down here at the Dung Gate, the guy, Mispa. Mispa is a ruler who rebuilt the Dung Gate. For all of history, not one, one word will be lost of scripture. He will be known as the guy that redid the Dungate. And the Dungate, you know what the Dungate was used for? So in this city were people and animals. And you know what they all create? Dung. And when they create that dung, it gets brought out through the Dungate. Thought you'd want to know that. Pretty exciting, isn't it? All right. Then we go up here and we, well, you get the rest of the story. It comes back around up here to the Chiefs Gate. I mean, it's just hard to read because it just seems so irrelevant to our lives. But there's something here that I just want to point out um, before we get back into worship. Something that's powerful because if you have gone with us on a journey and you've started to study and consider that really great leaders, in fact, if you know that if you know Christ, When Christ comes into our lives and he says the old is gone and the new has come, a part of the new that comes with us is an understanding that before the creation of the world, God God designed you. And scripture says he designed you not unintentionally, but he designed you intentionally. And what did he intentionally design you for? A purpose for you to walk in. In fact, as believers, we know that God's given me a general purpose I know I have a general purpose to follow Christ, but I also have a specific purpose. And that specific purpose I'm uniquely gifted for. And I want to mature. I want to mature in the gifts that he's given me. And I want to mature spiritually so that I'm
it's going to be hard to do that. And then we talked about prayer and why prayer is so powerfully important. Then we talked about that if you want to discover your will, God's will for your life, it's a combination of our passions, which is a great journey of understanding what you're passionate about, your gifts, and the doors that are open. And then last week, we talked about when that door opens, you better have the three R's because they're going to guide you when you go through that. And here's what I want you to hear today. If you're right here, you're walking through the door of God's will for your life. You've got to know something that's so important for you to know, and the world's not going to tell you. You're going to hear it first right here. And that is this. When you walk through the door and you walk into your call for God's will for your life, most of it is going to be boring. Most of it's going to be mundane. Most of it's going to be monotonous. Most of it's going to be just repetition. Most of it's not going to be noteworthy. Most of it, you're not going to get your journal out and go, dear journal, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. Most of it's going to be so plain. Like when you walk through the door of God's call for your life in marriage, which is a calling from God into the life of another person that God's called you to, trust me, most of your life with that person is going to be boring. No amens. Is there anybody married here? I mean, come on. You just can't say it in front of the oven. It's so boring living with you. I just, no, but think about when you're raising kids. It's great, but there's a lot about it that's boring. When you step into your job, the reality of it is, is that a lot of your job is just boring. If you were to be called by God to go to the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, and you went on this grand adventure, and everybody's like, I can't believe they're doing that. When you got there, most of it would be boring. Most of it. And if you don't understand the purpose of boring, this is where you get your pen out. If you don't understand the importance of boring, if you don't see the value in small things, you're gonna miss the big thing. Because boring is trying to do something in your life, it's on a rescue mission. And you know what it's on a rescue mission from? It's trying to rescue from the idealized life of spectacular to the life of significant. That boring is trying to unhinge your insatiable desire for spectacular and try to move you to a deeper place which is called Significant. So I love spectacular. I do. And I want a life that is spectacular. I want a life that's full of adventure. I want a life that's full of romance and sunsets and mountain climbing. I want great adventure. I want success. I want success. Like, like success upon success. Beyond success. I want achievements. I want things that are, that are awesome. I want a life full of profound moments. Don't you? Like those posters in the workplace. This is the only day you have. Live it to its full. Like, I'm going to live it to its full. Every day has to be profound. But it's a trap. It is a trap. I'll tell you one of my guilty pleasures. I like going to Nordstrom's Rack. Or Nordstrom's Rack. Do you ever come in there? No? I don't know. It's, when I walk in there, it's like... It's like when the doors open, I just feel everything is possible at that moment. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just you're greeted by a display of sunglasses that you'll never wear, but you're thinking somebody will wear those. That's odd, but yes, anything is possible. But there's something true about that place that if you don't know this, if you look over near the cashiers, they have like 10 registers. There is always, 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 I mean, it's happening right this second. There are 100 people in line there, always. 
There's always a hundred people in line. And I was checking out and you always are assessing, is this t-shirt worth me waiting 30 minutes in that line? You know, yes it is. And I was over there and I got in line and I decided when I walked up the line, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to stick it in my back pocket and I'm just not going to look at it. And you know what's crazy is I was the only person. And that doesn't surprise you because we're so addicted to spectacular. We're looking for it everywhere. We're looking at it on our phone. We're looking at it on our computer screen. We're looking at it everywhere. We are constantly in this mad search for something spectacular. We're constantly consuming it. But most of life isn't profound. I mean, the story that we just read, they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that was going to be the city that Jesus was gonna walk into and give his life for us. But to them, it was just putting one brick mortar, one brick mortar, one brick mortar. I'm telling you, if I had time, I could bring a mom up here, a mom who has already graduated one of their children. And we could say, tell us about the spectacular moments in your child's life. And that mom would tell us probably about graduations and, you know, sporting events and, you know, they were in a play or maybe that moment that they went on their first date. Like, that's such a memorable, that's so spectacular. And those, that Christmas gift they got that year, you know, that they lost in all the wrappings. And then the heartbreaks, the flus, you know, the vacations, maybe even the time they got their driver's license and nearly wrecked the car on the way to the DMV, you know, like all these spectacular stories. But in those stories, you know what's between them? Is a mama who cleaned a lot of butts. <laughs> mama who drove carpool. A mama who disciplined their child and their child didn't understand why they were being disciplined. A mama who did a lot of cleaning, a lot of praying, and a lot of patience, and a lot of coffee. Lots of coffee. Because there are spectacular moments, but you also know that in this world of spectacular discovered very quickly that nobody had the spiritual gift of chairs. <laughs> we had to set up, we didn't, we weren't in this facility that's, you know, air conditioned and it smells nice here. Like we were in Rocket Town down there for like 18 years and we had to set up like eight, 900 chairs every morning and we did spiritual gift tests. Nobody tested positive for the gift of chairs. Zero. And so we just had to show up. And I brought two shirts, the shirt, my chair shirt, my preaching shirt, you know? You'd sweat through your, your chair shirt. There were, there were several people in the room that were there those days and they started to smile. Why? because it was such a mundane thing. It was such a boring thing and it was such a holy thing. It was so holy. Why? Because Christ is holy and Christ is in me. And when Christ is in me, he makes me holy. And when he makes me holy, everything I touch becomes a holy work. Everything, even the boring, the mundane, they were holy moments. You know, I, I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I'm about to quote Jim Carrey. I know. Y'all don't know who Jim Carrey is? I, he is kind of my generation, isn't he? Like, he's kind of old now. Anyway, 
Jim Carrey said this, he was giving a speech and he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Oh, Jim, so profound, <clears throat> so profound. And as I was reading this, I, the person writing this article wrote this next story about a teacher of a third grade class who said to her third grade class, I'd like for y'all to come up and write on the board what you would like to be when you grow up. So the kids came up and they were writing on the board, you know, typical stuff, you know, I wanna be a police officer, I wanna be a firefighter, I wanna be a lawyer, I wanna be a doctor. And one little boy went up and wrote on the board, happy. <clears throat> and the teacher looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I think you misunderstood the assignment. The little boy looked at the teacher and said, I'm sorry, I think you misunderstood life. There's no third grader that enlightened. It's just, somebody made up that story, but it still speaks to something. Because boring wakes me up to something different than just events in my life. It changes me from being this, this human doer of spectacular to actually being a human being that can be Boring awakens me to two things. I'm going to talk about two things, and I'm going to close our time with a boring prayer, all right? Boring, if I embrace boredom, if I embrace the mundane, if I embrace these things as gifts from God, that is God's grace that your whole life's not fooled with spectacular, spectacular, spectacular. Like, if you would embrace just those quiet moments where there's nothing going on and shut off your deep desire for something spectacular to happen, you may discover two things. One is, you will discover that you have the ability to see and you have, the, you have the ability to be seen. So let me hit them real quick. To see. Almost 20 times in this passage it says, and next to him was, and next to her was. This whole chapter is talking about a community of people that shoulder to shoulder started picking up stones and rebuilding the wall. It's a picture of people coming together as one people to build a vision of the future. In fact, when you step back far enough, you go, oh, Nehemiah, you're brilliant. The wall wasn't the project. The process was the project. And what is the process? You were bringing God's people together through something so mundane as building a wall. Because it was priests, it was fathers and daughters, it was neighbors, it was friends, it was whole towns that came together as politicians, it was perfume makers, come on, it was the goldsmith. They all, on level ground, shoulder to shoulder, began to rebuild the wall and serve a common purpose and a common vision. Brought them together. See, when Nehemiah was bringing them together, he was helping them realize, guys, this is not Jerusalem. You are. This isn't Israel. You are. And you laboring to build a visible representation of a spiritual reality will knit you together more deeply in the spiritual reality. In other words, it gives us grace to see each other. Not as just somebody sitting next to me in church, but you are seeing someone that has been forged in the fire of redemption, but God's work in your life through Jesus Christ and has made you a new creation. And now you're a part of a family with them. 
And let me tell you where that bond is forged. In the boring. It's when you show up for the soccer game, your little kid's soccer game in March, and it's too cold to play soccer, and you're wondering, did nobody look at the weather report? Like, and you're standing there, and standing next to you is your friend who their kid's on your kid's team, and they show up, and they got Starbucks, and you're thinking, oh, y'all had time to go to Starbucks. That's great. We stand next to each other every Saturday morning. Could you have not picked me up some? Like, and you're bantering back and forth and you're joking, but you're not. You know what I'm talking about? Because you can do that with this person. That's where it's forged. So mundane. You know where it's forged? It's being on a food chain for somebody that you hardly know, but you heard they had a child and they're having a hard time recovering from the pregnancy. That's where it's forged. That's so boring. You know what it's forged? It's forged when you volunteer for Kid Town and you get to know people, their kids' names, and you don't even know their parents. And you know where else it's forged? It's when you volunteered last week and then you volunteer again this week because your friend who was supposed to volunteer can't because their two-year-old is sick and they call you on Saturday night and said, would you fill in for me? That's where it's forged. It's forged when you help Somebody that's a friend, but they're not a great friend, and you don't think y'all have the kind of friendship that they could actually ask you this question, but they do anyway, and the question is, will you help me move on Saturday? And you do it anyway. And you don't even eat the pizza that they bought to try to pay you off for it. You know where it's forged? It's forged in those boring moments. Yesterday when I was coming out of the Y, uh, I was stopped by Josie Gilbert. Do y'all know Josie Gilbert? She's about this tall. And I heard my name, Mr. Randy. And I immediately knew my neighbor's voice. And I turned around and she hugged me and she goes, today, now if you know Josie, she did this. Today, I had my first exercise dance class. I said, wow, that is fantastic, Josie. And she goes, do you wanna see some of my dance moves? You could have chained me to a semi and you could not have dragged me away from that moment. I'm like, Josie, yes, I want to see your dance move. And she showed me her chicken dance. And when she finished, I go, wrap this day up because it's complete. (laughs) Hugged her and I said, you're the best dancer on the planet. She goes, thank you. (laughs) And you know, the only reason you know that happened is because I have this platform and I can tell you about it. Because if I didn't have this platform, you would never hear about it because it's just another boring moment. It's just another moment where something spectacular isn't happening. And yet it is profoundly significant. Don't you agree? It's like going to small group. Like many of you are in small groups. This community of people, do you know we have more people going to small groups week to week than we have coming to worship on Sunday morning? Small groups are so much better than this. But do you know, this is crazy. When you go to small groups, what happens? It's not often spectacular, but it is profoundly significant. Many times it's just ordinary, opening up the word, you know, reading the passage. I just laugh thinking the small groups are gonna handle Nehemiah chapter three this week. Good luck. And it's just ordinary, but it's profoundly significant. It's a boring task of just doing head hard hands. It's just a boring task of going to your spouse and going, I'm too tired to go to small group. And they say, you're going anyway. It's just the boring task of when you don't want to go because there's a better game on than your small group, but you still go anyway. And you're building a wall with a group of people because you believe there's something significant happening here 
because you see them as people that are significant. See, when I step into the boring, I, it allows me to see you. But what also, when I step into the boring, it allows me to be seen. And I'm going to just tell you right straight up, it is hard to be seen. I mean, next time you go to lunch with a coworker, just ask them, would you just stare into my eyes the entire time we're having lunch? <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> like having somebody do that to you, like somebody who's staring intensely at you is so intimidating. Why? When we were little kids, we didn't mind it so much. We loved the attention, but as we got older, here's what we became afraid of. If you see me, if you really see me, if you really don't just see my spectacular, but you dare to think me significant and you look close enough, you know what you're going to find? I'm not significant at all. In fact, I've got parts of me that don't need to be seen by anybody. I don't want anybody to see that kind of stuff. I am so tired of being seen that I don't even want to stop. And when you get quiet, you can't turn this off because it's just going, going, going. And it's sending you shame messages and to-do lists. And you got to do this. You got to become this. And the Lord says, if you will just stop and be still, you will know that I'm God. The Lord says, if you would just stop and be still with me in that boring moment, Zephaniah 3 says, you will hear the Lord rejoicing over you and singing. He even says, don't let your hands hang limp. He says, turn your ears toward me and hear me rejoicing over you. captive to the lordship of that. In other words, when I get quiet and the war begins, I'm to take this war and I am taking it in a very boring way to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, you need to deal with that. And Jesus will say, yeah, I have done with that. Now take my hand and let's go. And you know what he does in that moment? <laughs> this is so crazy. I'll have to use this illustration again. When my daughter was little and she got a new dress, she'd always want to know where I am in the house. Because she knows what's going to happen when she goes, where's dad? And she goes, run in the living room. Okay, what do you think? And I would say, hmm. I would always, hmm. I don't know. Uh, could you spin for me? Do a little spin? And she would spin. And when she got through, I'd say, oh, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. That is the perfect dress for you. Why? When I'm just lavishing just attention and time. I see you. And let me tell you what I see because you can't see it. I can see it. I can see how wonderfully you are made, how uniquely you're knit together, and how beautifully you shine. What do you think she did when she walked away? Yeah. When I get into that boring moment and I get quiet and I hear the Lord rejoicing over with his singing, that's where the power is. Because, hey, boring people, when I experience that boredom, I don't walk into the world looking for peace. I'm walking into the world as somebody who has peace. I'm not walking into this world looking for somebody to love me and satisfy my hunger for love. I'm walking into this world as somebody who is deeply loved. I'm not walking into this world looking for contentment. I'm walking into this world as somebody who is content. Because what is forged in the quiet, boring road of holding the hand of your Savior always takes significance and brings it into life. And guess what it makes it? Spectacular.
even at the Y, when a little girl wants to show you a chicken dance. So if you're gonna be a leader, which all of you are, uh, fight for the boring road so that you can see others and you can also be seen. So Lord, just pray that whatever purpose you had this morning for this, this time uh, with my friends, this passage of scripture, thank you. I think it's profoundly significant that there was a whole group of people that didn't find this chapter boring. And it was the people in it that Nehemiah put names to this story. And I pray, Lord, and thank you that you put our name to your story, that you are telling a story and you are writing our name on the palm of your hand and you are rejoicing over us so that we can have the courage to see others and rejoice with them. Thank you, Lord, for this boring sermon, this boring service. Uh, this boring place of profound significance that would set us free from our addiction to spectacular. In Christ's name, amen.